Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, your leading source for insights and best practices on the digital transformation of healthcare. Join host Patty Patmanaban, CEO of Demo Consulting and best-selling author of Healthcare Digital Transformation, how consumerism, technology, and pandemic are accelerating the future in conversation with healthcare and technology leaders. This podcast is brought to you with the support of our partners, Innovacer and Powbox. Hi again, everyone. Uh, welcome back to my podcast. This is Patty, and it is my great privilege and honor to introduce my special guest today, Sean Duffy, founder and CEO of Amara Health. Sean, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for setting aside the time, and welcome to the show. Absolutely, Patty. Honored uh, to be on. Thank you so much. So, Sean, for the benefit of our listeners, would you like to tell us a little bit about who Amara Health and how you actually got to start the company? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Happy to share the story. So Omada Health is a virtual care company. We specialize in longitudinal disease areas. So the particular focus on chronic. So those those disease areas where you really need a lot of longitudinal, you know, day by day support versus visit by visit support. And we offer an integrated care suite of services in pre-diabetes, in diabetes, in hypertension in behavioral health and in musculoskeletal. So that's really the mission. It's to do you know, what we think digital can do best in healthcare, which is fill in gaps between visits. The company began actually as an internal project at IDEO. So I was in medical school, I was in an MD-MBA program at Harvard. I had worked at Google before. And between my first and second year in medical school, I took an internship at IDEO and thought I was going to go right back to medical school. But I sat pretty close to this gentleman, Adrian James, who at that point ran medical products for IDEO. We became fast friends. We got a little bit of a time and budget to think about transformational opportunities in digital health at the time. And the result was Omada. So um, I asked the dean for a year off at med school and got it and asked the dean for two years off and got it and went back for a third and they kind of cut me dry. So never uh, never ended going back. Never to went back. Never went back. <laughs> uh, that's a story that you hear once in a while from... <laughs> First of all, congratulations on all of all of the progress and the success. Just so our listeners appear, when did you actually launch the company? Uh, we founded in 2011. 2011. Okay, so you're 10 years going. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, so we just uh, just awesome. crossed our our 10 year mark exactly. Yep. Awesome, awesome. Who do you serve mainly? Is it providers, payers, employers? More of one versus the other. So the primary focus is on self-insured employers. Uh, you know that, of course, uh, as you might imagine, turns into many relationships with payers as well. Um, so we actually we contract as a provider, and you know, in fact, we do have many partnerships with providers, especially the ones that are integrated and have their own health plans. So you know, the likes of uh, Intermountain Health, Kaiser Permanente, etc. But the primary operating model for Mata is to go to employers, uh, share our vision, share our vision on what care can be, and how a different approach in these disease areas might benefit their employees both from a clinical outcome standpoint, an economic standpoint, but also a satisfaction standpoint. And oftentimes they'll, once they get excited by Omada, see if they could find a way for us to work with their health plan to make the implementation easy and simple. So that's actually led to, uh, uh, you know, in addition to the employers that we serve, many health plan partnerships as well. Now, you're still a privately held company. And can you share just for our understanding, you know, I'm sure you have institutional investors, Want to just give us a little bit of a, a color on you know who are your major investors and you know, how much money you've raised today? 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we, we've raised over $250 million to date, which is every time I say that number, I always remember my our very first uh, angel investment where um, someone you know believed in, in me and the company out of nothing and wrote a check for 60K. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so much money. Wow, like 60K. <laughs> but it does take a lot of capital to start a healthcare company. And you have to ensure that you're doing a way that earns the right to commercialize in what's, you know, many times appropriately a very risk-averse buying market. You know, healthcare is one of those undertakings that does require capital uh, in sufficient amounts to get started. So the investors that we have at Amada, we're, we're honored to have, uh, you know, great folks from many, many worlds in the earlier stage side, uh, great firms like U.S. Venture Partners, Andreessen Horowitz, yeah, Norwest, later stage folks like Wellington, Rock Springs Capital, Perceptive. And the thing that I'm most proud about is many of our customers have actually invested. And this is a uh, always on the back of us having a commercial relationship or a commercial partnership in some way and then seeing impact. So on the provider side, we've had uh, Kaiser Permanente invest, Intermountain invest, Providence invest. On the plan side, uh, Cigna invest, Humana invest, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota invest, and Quest Biometrics invest. We've had Sanofi invest, um, you know, all where we've had a customer relationship. And uh, you know, I think that that's a statement, the fact that those folks come from so many different worlds on the moment of convergence that, that we're having right now in the U.S. healthcare system between different disciplines. Yeah, and of course, uh, we are in a very interesting point in time as it relates to capital markets in particular, and we'll come back to that uh, and talk about that a little bit. Uh, it's an interesting moment. But uh, let's talk about the business itself. When we, we think of Amara, you mentioned longitudinal care relationships, you know, chronic care management, Type 2 diabetes is what really comes to mind when, when we think about the early days of Amara. But more recently, you've really started diversifying, you've got, started going into other chronic care conditions. Tell us the thought process behind that and what led to and what are some of the new services that you've launched and where you're headed with this? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been a real neat moment of transformation. The newest uh, area is musculoskeletal you know, disorders, uh, and that was through an acquisition of really an incredible company called Vizera. And the rhyme or reason for expanding really has to do with two things. You know, one, clinically, Omada is very interested in disease areas where we think our core capabilities can make a difference, and that a digital-first approach is the right approach. And metabolic, so pre-diabetes, type 2, and hypertension, that's, there's a clear answer there. Same with behavioral. Musculoskeletal is quite similar. You can really support people effectively from afar, not, not always, but, uh, you know, in the majority of of cases and clinically, it just felt so clear that there's a huge gap in access and quality and outcomes that digital could help bridge. And so that's that's kind of the, the first is clinically what's possible and what makes sense for digital. And then the second is uh, the voices of our customers. So you know, every single year at our customer summits, you know, we always ask if you were writing our strategy, what would you want Omada to do? How might we better serve you? What needs do you have? And we got pretty persistent feedback that they wanted Omada to do more and broaden our offerings to other areas. And the benefits that, that customers see to that is uh, it's a single company to work with, a single contract, it you know, simplifies implementation and enrollment, but there's also a lot of clinical comorbidity. So you can create really neat coordinated care experiences by having an integrated suite in these critical longitudinal areas. So uh, that ask kept uh, ringing loud and clear, and that led to uh, Omada strategy of, of broadening. And, and thus far, that's landing really well in the market. I assume that there are some synergies with the existing infrastructure and the, and the care teams and so on and so forth. As an entrepreneur myself, I find that if I have to think of one more thing, the mental bandwidth that you need, in addition to the, the resources and, uh, and the infrastructure and all of that, can also be a challenge, especially from a leadership standpoint. If you have to pay attention to 
two more things on top of the five big things that you already have. How do you really manage that? Does that, in some sense, distract you from the core mission or is it in some way accurate and you're really able to make the whole bigger than the sum of the parts? I'm just curious to, to know how you deal with that. No, for sure. And I think for, for entrepreneurs out there that may be listening to this, I think the guidance, and I think your instinct is spot on, the guidance that I'd provide is you really want to earn the right to enter kind of new areas, but don't do it too soon and don't do it too late. So because it does require a lot of organizational transformation to go from one product line to multiple. And it's never a simple journey because you have to rethink how you staff the product organization. You have to think about how you train and staff your commercial organization, all the subject matter experts from the clinical team that need to become fluent in all these condition areas. So, you know, a couple of tenets that we've worked to progress is make sure that the time is right. And that was number one. And then two, I call it selective breadth. So we're not the company that's going to go out and say, well, great, we're going to do everything. We're going to focus on the key, the key needs for our buyers and make sure that within those needs, we're doing a really great job and tying the room together and coordinating all the care between them in an elegant way, but it's a very heavy, heavy undertaking and, and focus is so important for companies as they grow. So um, yeah. you have to kind of pick the areas. Flipping the question from the customer standpoint, they see you as something today and then tomorrow you are a little more than that. You're offering new services, but maybe they have existing relationships for those new services. But you have a message that is more synergistic and it's a nice adjacent offering and so on. Today, what... Uh, the work that we do in our firm is saying that uh, clients are, are really struggling to parse all the offerings and all the solution providers in the market. How do you help them sort through some of their choices? You talked about musculoskeletal. There's a lot of companies getting into that. In fact, it was interesting. I saw the Amazon shareholders report, Jeff Bezos, he made a comment that I think like 40 or 50% of their warehouse employees have some kind of musculoskeletal condition. I was struck by that. So it's obviously a big issue, but there's also a lot of people getting into it. For your clients, you know, how do you help them make the trade-offs and the choices, especially as a new entrant uh, into the field, when there may be somebody out there who's already been doing it for a while. In your case, I know you came in through an acquisition, but if you just take this as a paradigm, how do you help your clients think through this? Well, first, I think it's really important to you know be flexible. So, and I don't think this is just a matter or just evident of our company and our stories. We've expanded to multi conditions, but you can't index too far on bundling or unbundling. So we have to we have to be able to support a la carte intentions. So if a customer wants to work with us and just kick the tires on Amada and just diabetes, no problem. Just MSK, that's absolutely fine. Of course, we share a vision on why. All the infrastructure ties really nicely together, and why you know it may make sense to you know deploy more than one kind of program area from Amada, but but you have to be flexible and, and kind of be okay with a little bit of configurability, especially in markets where you know employers may have made some decisions that are you know great decisions for them. You have to kind of approach it with a sense of humility and really listening to customers, and you know fundamentally just work to not just you know show and, and describe potential value prop and why the full suite in some might be better than the individual parts, but show it. Show it in the outcomes, show it in the clinical you know, protocols, the rationale, and then hopefully you earn the right to you know, support them in new ways. You're spot on. It's never kind of an, an either or, and you do need to remain remain flexible and, and true to you know, your original product areas as well. Yeah. Uh, from a competitive standpoint, last year, one of your big competitors, or at least someone that I think was a big competitor, Livongo, got acquired by Teladoc, and now Teladoc is trying to be that company. 
They're trying to offer a number of different things, kind of increasing the surface area, as they say. What does it mean for a company like Umara Health? Do you see them now as your primary company? What are your general thoughts on the competitive landscape where you are? Well, what I always remind people first and foremost is we're in early innings. And, you know, it's, it's funny. I mean, I chuckle a little bit when people shine so much light on, you know, Omada or Lavanga, not, not because we're not doing great things here, but if you add up the numbers of people we've helped, which, you know, is, is um, in about 450,000 and counting. And I think that when, for us, it's a little bit more in the pre-diabetes space. For Lavanga, it's more in the type two. And I think it was a, about the same when they sold to Teladoc. Um, but look at the overall disease epidemiology of metabolic disease. Like, we haven't done nothing relative to improving the overall health curves and epidemiological curves of the country. So that's a statement on how much room there is to have a lot of a lot of players here. And it's a great thing for the world if we're taking different approaches into market. And I think both organizations will be hugely successful. So you know, I give them a lot of credit. And we have a we do have a common vision. A common vision is that an integrated care suite can make a difference here. And we have kind of our unique, you know, unique approaches and, and styles. And I think that's to be celebrated. So we're honored to compete with them. And, uh, you know, hopefully they feel similarly. I like the you know, it's an abundance mindset. Uh, this pie is big enough for many, many players and we're barely scratching the surface. I actually like that, that whole approach uh, to the market. When you look at the markets in general, now that digital health is kind of having a moment, there's billions and billions of venture capital money, that's uh, digital health companies. Digital health companies are going through a lot of consolidation, M&A. You know, your customers are buying your competitors, maybe in some cases. Competitors are merging with one another. When you look at the marketplace out there, what are the one or two things that you try to keep your keep track of or keep your finger on the pulse of? What do you like to keep tracking so that you know you're able to calibrate your, your, your own progress against whether you're on the right track or not. Yeah, so Larry, the, the number one is what our employers and plans are saying to, and telling to us. Like the, um, and it's my, my most refreshing, insightful moments are talking to our customers or talking to our sales reps that are talking to our customers or just like staying really close there because it's amazing. We've all, we've all lived it. We've lived in various kind of walks of industry life. We've lived hype cycles. We've lived down cycles. And it's almost too easy sometimes to get caught up in like, the excitement of a deal or a merger or a financing. Or, and I always try to remind my, or, you know, our employees, like, let's stay just really true to serving our customers or members and just always think, how can you do that better? All the rest will follow. The rest doesn't even matter. If you're not in a position where you can ignore the cacophony in a hype cycle, you're not going to be in a position where you can stay true to your roots and power through a cycle where there's critique about the digital health space. And expect both in this journey, this is a multi-decades journey, hang tight and stay measured and focused on serving customers and members. And that's all you need to do. That's how we kind of keep our truth. But it's a very dynamic marketplace. And it's an honor to be serving as an innovator in this moment is in transformation of the U.S. healthcare system, because it's a, it's a really remarkable, remarkable time. Absolutely. This podcast is brought to you with the support of our partners, Innovacer and Powbox. Let's talk about the individual segments that you serve. Employers are tired of healthcare cost inflation. There's no secret. Exactly. Yep. Health plans uh, are trying to find their find their way in this mix. Uh, providers are, you know, they have their own unique set of challenges because now a big part of their marketplace is getting chipped away by telehealth providers and new digital health startups mm-hmm. and so on. So a lot of the primary care marketplace is now up for competition. So. There's a lot of shifts that are taking place. So can you share with our listeners, what is the one common theme that you hear from your 
employer customers versus your health plan customers versus your providers is one thing that strikes or stands out for you when you talk to your customers. Yeah, so I think that the biggest thing right now, it's a it's refreshing. Omada used to have a very provocative uh, point of view. Five years ago, we put out this piece and we were like, look, in-person care needs to be option B. Why on earth would you drag someone into you know a waiting room of a clinic unless you couldn't solve their needs safely and effectively from afar? Now, you can't do that in everything. Like Omada's not going to be doing hip surgeries, but there's a lot that you can do. What's happened in part thanks to COVID, um, it was heading this direction anyway, but it's become an obvious that uh, the digital delivery of care is here to stay. And that's something to be embraced, not as icing on top of an existing system, but as a fundamental part of the US healthcare system. And you know, I think tomorrow's payers are going to have network teams that set up networks with digital providers, just like they do. They have network teams that set up networks with um, in-person providers. And that's common. Everybody, yes, for what's common between all the stakeholders, it's very hard now to find either an employer or a plan or a provider that does not have a digital care strategy, that does not think that digital care and the digital provisioning of care is here to stay. And that's a beautiful accelerant. That'll uh, yield remarkable transformation. You've heard that, you know, we hear often that what was supposed to accomplish, be accomplished in five years has been accomplished in five months during the first five months of the pandemic last year, especially from the point of view of adoption of telehealth and virtual care models. Now, some say that it went maybe a little too far to one end because of the circumstances, and now some of it is coming back. And there's some equilibrium somewhere in the future, which is going to be both. What is your own view of where we're going to be, maybe 18 or 24 months? What does a hybrid world look like for you or for Rwanda? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think what, what COVID did is it you know, exposed huge opportunity, but also exposed some fissures because you can't trick yourself into thinking that you can do everything digitally. You know, I mean, it's a. A lot of my friends are now practicing docs, right? And they're uh, doing like asynchronous digital or synchronous like digital like care first. And I'm like, well, how many of your patients that are in the primary care setting, like how many you have to send them to in person? Like a fair amount. So you can't accomplish everything with far. Omada is focused on disease areas where we think the bulk of the provisioning of care. I always say the tipping point's 80%. That's that makes an area clinically of interest for us. The bulk can be done from afar safely and effectively. So I think that we've learned what does work and doesn't work, and that's going to help us get into equilibrium and it's going to be a hybrid. I think we will end up in a world where every single health system, doesn't matter if you're UCSF or Dr. Duffy's independent you know, two-person primary care practice, you will be doing some form of telemedicine. You'll be doing video visits, you'll be doing phone visits, like that's going to persist. And I think what's going to happen, that will just be everywhere. What's going to happen is companies you know, like Omada will just really become expert in things that can augment the in-person care system and really fill in all the gaps because the operational transformation, the pricing model transformation, the the care team and professional and personnel transformation required to tool up oriented toward longitudinal is, is quite heavy. So I think some things will be adopted universally at the level of the current provider and some things will stay kind of a, in the cloud and in the pocket. Yeah. If I look at the digital health landscape today, I read somewhere that there's over 5,000 digital health startups in the market give or take. And there's obviously a lot of VC money that is out there. And today, lot, yeah. you can go out and what used to be maybe a $2 million series is now a $20 million series. The definition of series, you know, again, I'm not in the market, but just what I read, the numbers are just mind-boggling. You've been in the business a long time, so you've kind of seen some cycles, you know, you've seen the ups and downs a little bit. 10 years is a long time, you know, uh, relatively speaking, and uh, you've got a degree of stability. But what's your advice to 
startups and indeed to VC firms who are getting into the digital health yeah. space today. <laughs> yeah, well, there's things that I think, A, I, I, I'm excited. I, I like to see the, the capital in the space. I think it's like, heck, like, let's have a lot of smart minds run at hard problems and innovate and see what happens. And, you know, the beautiful thing about the, the world of entrepreneurship and venture is, by definition, it's not all going to work. But the ones that do are going to work beautifully. So um, I love that that's the case. Now, the guidance I'd give today that I think is consistent with the guidance I'd give five years ago. And then what we learned pretty quick is you in the US healthcare system cannot find a shortcut. You will not be able to like disrupt from the side, go around the system. Like that is not possible, nor should that be the objective. And, you know, I always describe the US healthcare system love it or hate it, there's just some immutable laws of physics that you're not going to be able to get around. You have to learn where the value is, how a dollar flows through the system. You have to be able to deal with the complex you know, dynamics of navigating different insurance lines. You have to literally plan a go-to-market strategy almost specific to each state because the state-by-state -state dynamics are completely different. So when a tech entrepreneur calls me in for guidance on building an enterprise healthcare business, first I try to dissuade them because I figure if they do it anyway, <laughs> then it means they're really passionate about it. But then the the second kind of bit of counsel I give is is ramp the learning curve, like ask a lot of really dumb questions, be okay with that. And just don't try to cast judgment on the system, just view it as it is and find a way to operationally innovate within the constraints. Like that's the way to get the job done. Like you can't pretend that there's some like magic route. There's just things that are tough to change. That was kind of depressing. What you learned in 10 years, you just gave it away. You just gave away the secret sauce now. I'm, I'm uh, a huge optimist. I, be, I believe. I'm a believer. But you also have to be pragmatic. So Yeah, I've heard this disruption thing. Again, you know, I, I, you know, I've been around in healthcare a while too. So I know that when I hear the word disruption, uh, you know, my eyes roll back a little bit. It's not correlate with success usually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about some of your some of your customers, right, especially the health plans, they are going about acquiring a lot of these companies. What do you see as a rationale for doing that? You know, Walmart acquired somebody, Cigna has acquired somebody. The health plans are out there acquiring these telehealth companies. What are they trying to do? Well, I think they're listening to the, the same voices that we listen to. Uh, you know, I, Walmart, I guess, is a little, a little bit different here. I can touch on that one. But, you know, if you're a health plan and you serve self-funded employers, and your self-funded employers are like, hey, what are you doing relative to digital care for my employees? Because I know that's the future. You're doing a calculation. You'll think through, well, what are the pieces that you know I want to have in-house fundamentally and you know to bring value to my customers and integrate with my additional services? And what are the what are the pieces that I want to partner and find great companies to work with? And you know, people will come to their own their own determinations. But I, you know, I think it's an exciting time in the space. And then I love the new entrants. Like it's so fun to watch a Walmart come in. To care in different ways, Amazon, Google. It's just so, it's really exciting. I think like Walmart is going to do just extraordinary things for, for care for the country, as are many of the plans making bets and innovations here too. So, You mentioned Amazon. I did want to talk about that briefly. Again, Amazon is among the big tech firms a little bit different because they are directly getting into the healthcare space as opposed to the others who are more about offering the technology platforms on on which you can deliver care more efficiently. So yep. what does that mean for incumbents in the space? And uh, again, Amazon's success is not foretold because they've had one very visible failure in the form of Haven, but Amazon's doing 50 experiments at any one point in time. 
And so what do you make of that? And, you know, what is your view of the big tech firms and the role they're going to play going forward in how care is delivered in future, the whole transformation that we're seeing? Yeah, no, for sure. So I think what naturally tends to happen, I have zero inside information in any of this, but I think what, what naturally tends to happen is companies end up being excellent in the things that are in the back of their core strengths. So, you know, I think you look at Google, like they're, they're just, they solve computer science miracles. You know, I think their approach to developing incredible machine learning and artificial intelligence models to look at radiological data and help augment clinicians' interpretations of readings is extraordinary. I think like that, that sort of like deep computer science meets biology work, I think will likely be where you know, Google makes its biggest contributions on the Amazon side. I think it's really complex supply chain and operations. And the acquisition of PillPack and the pharmacy is kind of a great example. And Amazon Pharmacy is a great example. And then um, Amazon Care, I'd put it in the same category. It's very logistically complex to deliver care at all digitally. And Amazon has kind of a very unique approach, which I think is a beautiful approach, which is really listening to the pragmatics of care delivery and recognizing that you do need in-person and they have the ability to like have someone show up. <laughs> and Amazon has a really neat learning mindset. Like They like to approach a market with a very strong sense of customer centricity. And I think they're learning the details and the specifics that others have maybe tripped on in the past. And I think they'll be, I think in time they'll be very successful. It's not going to happen overnight. If you take the average benefits leader, it's not like, oh great, cool, Amazon launched Amazon Care. I'm going to go buy it. Yes, they'll be interested in learning more, but it's not even for Amazon in the space, it's not going to be overnight, but that's a patient business. And that's a business that's willing to put a lot of capital to work to write out whatever time period it takes. Yeah. Well, we're coming up to the end of our time. And I had I wanted to touch on one topic, which is the whole regulatory environment and the reimbursement environment, right? This, you know, healthcare is always about following the money at the end of the day. And so Telehealth, we've seen some of the waivers come in. They're not permanent yet, but the hope is that they will be there. We're seeing a shift from traditional payment models like PMPM to you know, slightly different alternatives, emerging mm-hmm. models. What is your view on where the reimbursement environment is headed today in the market? And if there's one thing that you would like the regulators to address, what would that be? Yeah, so I'll hit it right out of the gate because actually my biggest worry relative to the inability or, or potential for us to seize the opportunity that COVID's presented to transform healthcare. And what we don't want to end up happen is wonderful. Now all of a sudden we're doing fee-for-service through video and we call that success at the end of the day. And it's now, oh great, you know, clinicians can now bill through a video visit or a phone visit. That is not the end state. And what people sometimes you know, forget in the nuance here is the destination is really allowing for flexibility in service models that can accommodate either synchronous interactions or asynchronous interactions. So people sometimes forget that a lot of care preference at the hands of the consumer might literally be to kind of text their care professional, email their care professional. So the ask for Medicare and regulators is to really open up open minds to ways where you can thoughtfully accommodate asynchronous billing models. And there's ways to do it. You can think through like a care episode where once it starts over 15 days, a clinician's allowed to interact in whatever way possible. And that episode is done for X dollars. Like there's creative solves here. Omada's always priced in a a different way than fee-for-service. So our current pricing, it's kind of like, you kind of think of it as Medicare Advantage-esque in that we align with the scope of services that we provide. We have a monthly rate 
that we charge to provide that. And it includes devices, your primary coach, your certified diabetes educator, your nurse, like whatever services we render inside that. But we retain the flexibility to personalize against the need. And I think that that's what needs to happen for billing models. Like it would be a shame if all of a sudden we're like, okay, job well done. We really transform healthcare. Now clinicians can bill synchronously through video or phone. That is not the end state to maximize benefit for, for people across the country. That's very well said, uh, Sean. Sean, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, we look forward to following your company's progress and uh, all the very, very best to you and your team. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much, uh, you know, Patty, for, for having uh, me on the podcast. A, a huge honor. And uh, anytime uh, we can help you and uh, you know others, just let me know. Oh, well, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can reach us at info at thebigunlock.com with your feedback and questions. This podcast is brought to you with the support of our partners, Innovacer and Powbox.